Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. With Nashville, Tennessee being one of the hottest real estate markets anywhere in the world, wouldn't it make sense that you'd be looking for a smarter real estate experience? Compass pairs the industry's top real estate agents with innovative technology to deliver a seamless experience for every client, from first-time buyers to seasoned sellers. I personally chose Lisa Gaston and the Gaston Collective to represent me when I sold my house recently here in Nashville. It was in the back end of the boom where the prices got to a point where everything was starting to retract, but she held firm and she delivered a great sale for me, and I'm unbelievably grateful for all the work that she put in, especially through trying and difficult times. Some of that was out of her control. With her deep local knowledge and her commitment to exceptional client service, she's helping clients all across Nashville find their place, including me. If you're interested in finding your greatest experience in the real estate journey in Nashville, contact Lisa Gaston today and visiting Compass. The Gaston Collective is a team of real estate licensees affiliated with Compass RE, a licensed real estate broker, and abides by the equal housing opportunity laws. I can't tell how often I have conversations with clients about the difficulty in hiring talented business professionals. I tell them all the same thing. It's no different than working on your golf game. Trust your local pro. If you're in Nashville, Tennessee, there's no better resource than SHR Talent. They partner with top organizations in Music City to attract, successfully close, and onboard candidates across their core competencies of accounting and finance, tech, HR, and marketing. Contact SHR Talent today. SHRTalent.com. That's SHRTalent.com. Remember, the future depends on your talent. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is the founder and CEO of Sierra Constellation Partners, LLC. He's become a great uh, confidant of mine, a person I love to bounce ideas off, and today joining me is Larry Perkins. Larry, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me, Virgil. My pleasure. What's it's interesting to me, I was, I was plowing through your, your info and I, I see you have things that are looking for long-term vision or long-term works, but yet you're an, you're kind of into interim management. How do they coexist together, and how did you land upon an interim style versus a permanent style or a takeover style? No, I appreciate it. Um, and it's interesting, and I feel like it's this uh, weird juxtaposition that I have in my world because I've you know, I've started and now run a company that's, you know, a nice, healthy company that is fixing very broken companies. So what I've, what I've kind of learned is the, the interim side, you know, that I do for my clients is very different than what I'm doing for my, you know, day-to-day kind of my company. Mm -hmm. Um, 
personality wise, just interim resonates with me. It, it works. It's fast. It's important. Uh, scary, you know, all, all the feels. Um, and, and also just the, is the opposite of the measure twice, cut once type of thing. And, mm. and that's just how I like to work. Um, so I, th- I think I've, I've got there by mistake, uh, just like anything else I've, I was doing investment banking and that was interesting. And then I realized that I like the human side of working with people a little bit more as opposed to just the deal side of thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just by doing it a little bit, I was like, yeah, that was fun. Let's do it again. You know, kind of let's run it back. And then sure. you did it a few more times. And then you get to this point of kind of scalability is like, yeah, I like doing this, but man, I'm working my butt off. I'm traveling too much. You know, it'd be great if I had some more help to be able to do this. I could make a few more bucks if I had some more help to do this. By the way, I see these guys over here. They're not that much smarter than me and they're doing it for hundreds of companies a year. How do I do that? So there's, I have this kind of joke with myself that, you know, since it worked out, the, the reverse narrative is very, very clean, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but it was the opposite of deliberate. It was more like, Hey, that, that looks fun. Like, let's go try that. And then you go do that thing and like, okay, that worked out. Let's keep doing that. Or, Oh, let's try something else. So I've kind of taken this interim approach to the overall life just because I think that's just how I'm plumbed. It's just mm-hmm. the way that I was built. Mm-hmm. Um, and on some things it's worked out real well, other things hasn't worked out real well. Uh, but as it relates to just the business side, I think it was just, just part of me and, and it just was a natural extension of how my personality works. Interesting. Do you find that when you find these companies that are re- asking for your help, that there is a constant systemic issue or is there a variety pack of issues that derail companies? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's more variety pack than, than, you know, one consistent thing that, that's that there are themes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the one theme that, you know, is, is probably most interesting, but probably not the most relevant is, is just kind of bad boy behavior, you know, lying, cheating, stealing stuff. And I've seen stuff that would, you know, make your hair stand wow. on end, uh, you know, scammers, schemers, grifters, whatever you want to uh-huh. call it. And it's actually interesting to take that part and, and just reflect on humanity. Otherwise, where you're like, man, if I've seen that, like, I wonder what else is out there. You try not to get jaded by it. So that, that's the most salacious and probably like one theme that's out there. You know, lying, cheating, stealing, ultimately it catches up to you. You know, just like the Bible says, just like, yeah. <laughs> you know, just like, uh, you know, kindergarten says, you know, it does catch up to you, but I've seen some of that. Um, the the other thing is, and it's something we were talking about off, offline, but the, uh, you know, I think there's this uh, mania, particularly in financial services, that like growth, 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 growth. Um, and, you know, to do that, you have to put on debt and you have to put on a bunch of money and you have to really go for it. If, you know, all the expressions, if you're not growing, you're dying. And it's hard like yeah. to, to be a company that, you know, doubles in value in two or three years. And, you know, and that's how private equity works or what public markets expect. Man, that's hard. Yeah. Like real hard. Um, I've tried it. It's, it's, it's difficult. And I think the the derivative effects of that mania is probably the biggest theme. Uh, and I think it finds itself in lots of different ways. Okay, maybe you put on a lot of debt so you can do that. That's that's an obvious one. Um, maybe you kind of swing for the fences on you know new business initiatives, trying to buy companies, whatever it is, to try and grow really fast and yeah. shortcut some of the things you may need to do. Uh, that's a theme. Um, you know... Uh, there, there, there's funny themes I've seen, like, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of family businesses that have grown quite big and then they sell to private equity or they sell, they go public and they lose that, um, 
thing that a family business has that mm-hmm. is different, and it's a double-edged sword. Some, some of the family business stuff is a real pain in the neck, and some of it is you know, the secret sauce that makes the whole thing work. I've seen that as a theme over years. So it's more themes that rhyme as opposed to like one thing that happens overall. But I mean, at the end of it, it's, you know, growing faster than you came from. You know, one of the things I look at whenever I go into a company, because, you know, they're all pretty big companies, sure. five, six, seven hundred million dollar companies. And yeah, it's not, you know, General Electric or some giant Google. It's not, not those companies, but you look at, I mean, that's a big company, you know, I, and I, I talk to my team about this a lot, you know, when it's, it's very easy to say, well, uh, you know, it's a bunch of morons there. They, you know, they didn't know what the hell they were doing, but you know, I look at them and say, you know, how many 500 million companies have you built? You know, like, good luck with that. Um, but you go into these and it's an interesting analysis is, is you look and say, okay, this is, you're not making any money when you're five, six, seven hundred million dollars, but man, you were killing it when you were 250 or 200. Like what was the difference then versus now? Was it people, you know, were you doing something that was simpler? And sometimes it's just, you know, taking a step back and looking and saying, all right, what worked before that got you there? You know, forget about all the things that happened from there, but let's figure out how to get back to that core. Um, and it, it's easy being, independent when you're coming in because you don't you don't have any of the emotion attached with all those decisions to get there because man it's growth is exciting it's fun it's optimistic i mean you're looking at a spreadsheet and saying you're going to be making you know squajillions of dollars out in a couple of years but then you don't think about you know all the things that happen in between or maybe it doesn't work and then you have to look back and say man we we took a shot but it didn't work yeah so it's almost like like there's that berkshire hathaway uh mindset which is slow and persistent and then there's the for lack of a better term the bernie madoff model (laughs) which is how fast can i make it and hope to run before i get caught so to speak uh in the mindset of how quick people like i think that success especially in the world we live in today is viewed as it's something that happens quick Mm -hmm. and oh look how good this person is look how good this person's doing look how fast they grew that but more times than not, they have no idea how long they've actually been at it. Mm-hmm. They just came on the scene, you know, maybe even at year 12 of a business, and it sounds like it's a brand new company. And mm-hmm. now in two years from the time you heard about that guy, it's a gigantic, mm-hmm. gigantically successful company. And they think that, well, if I can't do it in two years like so-and-so did, then I'm failing. Mm-hmm. When in all actuality, they missed the whole backstory. Oh, yeah. Almost like the picture of like the, the iceberg where like 75 feet of it's above water and yeah. 300 feet of it's below water. Yep. When, is there any particular situation that you look for that's kind of like your sweet spot in, in, in your company? Or do you kind of really don't even look for sweet spots? You just look at excitement that pertains to how your intellect sees the problem. You don't really care what the problem is. You just kind of want to see how this piece of the puzzle can can be fixed. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's probably more the second one, you know, what's exciting, what's an opportunity, what sounds like we could really help. Um, that said, there are themes. I, I like when something's stuck, right? When, mm. when there's different constituents who are kind of bickering about what's going on, you know, maybe the bank's angry at the owners or the management team doesn't think, uh, I like that. Cause you know, there's a little bit of a opportunity to step in the middle of that and just say, like, I don't care what, you know, if you guys are yelling about, it doesn't really matter. You know, we got a real problem. We got to get from here to there. How do we do that? Um, and those are the most exciting. Cause I think you can, you can make quick change too, when that happens. Uh, but it's, it's not like an industry or a theme or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just the, 
the opportunity to get a bunch of people on board and move it. I, I fancy that as kind of a leadership thing because you're not paying anyone any more money. You're not changing the motivations. You're just trying to move the rock forward. And Got it. I like it. it. There's this, you know, if I was pitching you, there's this kind of like picture I draw where, you know, you look at it hubs and spokes and a, you know, like a bicycle wheel. Like I like to be the middle of the wheel. That's kind of pushing the whole wheel forward, kind of forward momentum and mm-hmm. everything's rolling in the same direction. But the, you know, the middle of it is what's pushing forward. That's how I, I think about it. Interesting. So at the, at the end of it all, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. You, you started probably with one and then you <laughs> did another and then you did another and you probably weren't expecting to be where you are today, no, no. 10 years ago. Maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah but, but I mean, at the end of the day, you were in investment banking, and that for some people, that is like super exciting. And it, was it because of an opportunity you had through investment banking that showed you this vision, or was it something else that steered you into the direction that you're in right now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, part of it is is a, you're a little bit of just the circumstances around you. So I'm... I'm 45 years old, so born 1977, graduated college a little bit early. But really, when I came out of school, you know, it was the, it was the dot-com era of mm-hmm. what was going on. Um, and, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, a lot of listeners remember, but, you know, there was this big decision you had to make. You know, are you going to go to pets.com because, man, they're going to pay you a bunch of money and, you know, have foosball in the office? Or do you do something a little bit more steady eddy? And at that point in my life, I, I was, you know, I was kind of looking, I was like, man, that sounds exciting, but I'm not quite sure I get it. And then, um, you know, luckily I, I didn't get it. And, and, you know, I, I was able to avoid some of the excitement, um, mm-hmm. and maybe build some skills that helped. Um, and then, you know, you know, from there it was, there was a, you know, the first part of my career was just building skills, um, and, and, and keeping my eyes open a little bit. Uh, I remember, uh, my first job was actually at Arthur Anderson right out of school, which is a great company. Um, and I remember working there and I was real good at work. You know, I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was fast. I was, uh, you know, reasonably smart. I could do, you know, a lot of work, but I remember looking at my bosses around me, especially the ones that were kind of the big dogs in the office. And I was like, man, those guys are, you know, they're, they're talking on the phone. They're bullshitting. It's part of my French. They're, mm-hmm. they're BSing with friends. Uh, you know, they're going to play golf with their buddies. I'm like, what are they doing that I'm not? Cause I'm sitting here staying until two o'clock in the morning and they're, you know, going to lunch and having, yeah. like, how do I do that? And I don't think it was, I don't think I really identified that so much uh, specifically, but it stuck in my head. And I was like, okay, I want to do more of that as opposed to just sitting here in front of a computer and grinding out spreadsheets all day. Mm-hmm. So I think it stuck with me and then, you know, just kind of came up in different ways. And then, then I did the banking thing for a little bit. And, and, you know, for me, that was like the, the brass ring. Um, I, I honestly didn't know what an investment banker was. It grew up in Southern California, you know, not midtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a, a, you know, girl in my class growing up and her dad was an investment banker and again, didn't know what he did, but you know, cool car, had a house and jackson hole i was like that sounds cool like i want to yeah. do that like let me figure out how to do that and uh but then when i got in there and this has been a little bit of the theme you get there and it's like well it, it it's interesting it pays all right but uh i'm not sure i love this um and that was right when the dot-com thing was really crashing so that was you know after my first job and into my second job kind of three four years out of school mm-hmm. and uh and we were working with a company at that point uh, and that was kind of my, I got kind of jumped into what I do now by virtue of, of this one situation. And it was, 
I mean, a pretty pretty boring company, but it was uh, you know like a roofing contractor that was trying to grow, and they were buying other roofing contractors, and at that point that was happening a lot and they were rolling up and private equities investing. But then that was just as the, the world was collapsing a little bit in at least that time around. Is that 07, 08? Yeah. No, gosh, no, this was uh, was 01, 02. So that's the dot com thing. Yeah. It was, it was a roofing contractor up in Silicon Valley and, and, you know, kind of classic of what we were talking about. They read the newspaper and, you know, they see all their buddies starting companies and selling for, you know, several hundred million dollars. And the guy that's had the steady Eddie roofing company for, you know, 60 years in the family decided he was going to buy a whole bunch of them and be a tech enabled roofing company. It doesn't really matter, but, but, uh, I remember, you know, it didn't work basically that, you know, yeah. the, the, the market collapsed and then they, they went from saying, okay, we're going to go raise a bunch of money and take over the world, you know, one roofing company at a time to, Hey, maybe we should just sell this thing. Uh, and then, you know, the, the markets were soft enough at that point that then even the, the sale wasn't really an option. So I remember working, uh, working with them through the sale, and then the sale, then they got in trouble because okay, okay, they couldn't raise money, they couldn't sell the company, and that's when it really, that's when I really liked it because then it was, it went from, and I've used this expression before, it went from being kind of a want to to a need to, so you know I felt valued. It yeah. was like we need to do something here, and and when I was doing that, then you're kind of like, okay, how can I help? And you really get into the nitty gritty of the business. Uh, you know, I like people. So you see the humanity of the people and what's scaring them and like kind of what's driving their real motivation. And you're like, okay, I can work with that. Like if I know what you want to do, then I can probably figure out how to get there. And I was still a kid, 24 years old, something like that. And, but I I remember liking that. And then, you know, the company I was working with did some more work like that. And then I I got recruited away to go work at a bigger company doing this sort of work um, and got to do it again and again. And it just stuck with me. Um, so I guess that's the story. Yeah, interesting. Well, I, uh, one of my uh, favorite ways to enjoy my time is playing golf. And I went to Bandon Dunes. And I remember, I mean, I would say it to this day, people ask me all the time, if you had one round of golf in, in the world to play, where would you play it? And I always answer that question, well, if I get one round, I'm going to play Cypress Point. But if you're going to give me a whole weekend and then I'm I'm shutting it down, Bandon Dunes is the greatest. So I'm digging into Mike Kaiser wrote a book on Bandon Dunes. And at that time, Pronghorn was being designed by the guy who designed the first course. And it was the architecture and the visuals and all the stuff that I got a chance to see. I thought, man, this place is awesome. And then literally, I didn't hear of it again. Until I'm giving you a lesson one day, and you tell me that that was one of the golf courses that you took an interim stake in, and I was like, man, whatever happened to that place? And golf is such a unique uh, business model because it's generally, it's not easy to make it. And right now, coming off of the COVID golf boom, golf courses are, are thriving right now. But I think this year is a big year because it's the first, like, completely I'd call COVID free run because even at the, in the beginning of last spring summer, when golf kicks up again, it was still pretty high on the radar screen. Uh, COVID was. And although most of the country was back open again, people had created a new habit with their life, which is I'm going to go play some golf. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, like I would, I think we're going to see, there's a lot of people that have invested in golf because it's so popular right now. How long can it sustain itself? That's going to be interesting. But what did you see, or what do you see in golf courses that you take on that are 
exciting for you versus dangerous for you? You mean as a consumer or as a, as a business guy? As a business guy. Yeah. Um, honestly, it, it, it's it's a little bit of a lame answer, but but timing because um, I think hmm. you know uh, you know I, I did work on Pronghorn and I mean it was spectacular and I encourage anyone to go if they can go there. Um, but uh, you know they were really a victim of circumstance in some ways because, uh, you know, it's in Bend, Oregon, which is, you know, I'm a fly fisherman too. I mean, it's, it's God's country. I mean, yeah, it's, it's awesome. a gorgeous place to go. Good weather, you know, four seasons, all those sorts of things. Uh, but you know, for whatever reason, it's, it's a, it, it is one of the uh, communities that is almost most victimized by the ebbs and flows of the economic cycles. It was a funny statistic, but, and, and I'm dating myself. It's probably, you know, 14, 15 years ago now. So, you know, fact check me, but, yeah. but, uh, uh, if I recall, uh, Bend, Oregon was the fastest declining community from a home price standpoint during uh, the last recession, the Great Recession, 2007, yeah. 2008. Because I think it was all second homes from you know the Bay Area and Portland, Oregon, all these growth areas, and you know it got expensive and money was cheap. So you know lots of people bought second homes because it's a beautiful place and it was you mm-hmm. know, cheap before that happened. And then when the economy corrected itself, that particular community collapsed. But you know, pronghorn specifically, but you know, probably lots of golf courses around the the country, maybe world. You know, develop around that, right? I mean, you have a bunch of people moving in; they've got a bunch of money at second homes. So let's put a golf course here because that's what those people like to do. So, depending on when they come in on the cycle, and you know, practically speaking, pronghorn just came in late to the cycle. You know, they yeah. were opening; they didn't get the full run of all the prosperity. They got kind of the tail end of it. So as a result, they were kind of hung, you know, they didn't, they didn't get the benefit, but they got the detriment of the, of the, the top of the bubble kind of coming down the other side. Yeah. I expect it's going to be probably pretty similar. Um, I don't know where it's going to be. Um, you know, we're, we're doing this in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, I think there's, there's, this is a community that I think has a lot, you know, high ceiling. I don't, I don't think it's probably here, but I think there have been communities that have grown really quickly, uh, you know, different this time than the recession because some people are just moving there to live there for good. Sure. Um, whereas before I think it was still a little bit more office bound. So these were second homes. So I'm not sure how sticky it's going to be this time compared to previous ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, the purely secondary home markets, I think the ones that were relatively late to this boom cycle that just happened, um, maybe ones that are real hard to get to. Um, you know, some of these places are, you know, it's, it's, it's no joke. Easy. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're planes, trains and automobiles to get there. I, mm-hmm. you know, that, that seems like a top of market type of thing. Um, you know, unless you're catering to the, you know, the point zero 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 one percent that is flying on their own plane to get there. It's a yeah. different thing, but that's a very, very small market. Very. So I, I have to think there's going to be, you know, a big correction. And then, you know, it, well, I'm the consummate optimist. I mean, what's going on in the world is is pretty wild. I mean, this inflation thing is is no joke. Yep. Um, you know, housing prices, all those things. At a certain point, golf's got to fall out of the budget. You know, for for John Q. American, I'm not saying. Yeah. You know, the CEOs and in, in the what will probably still keep playing golf, but you know that that guy who was able to fork out 150 to 200 bucks to go to a nice local community course uh you know that's a lot of money uh you know when bacon's nine bucks yeah yeah that's a different that's a different thing so i mean i I feel like water always finds its level i mean i think i haven't seen any charts on this maybe you have but i think golf got wildly popular probably above the mean even if it's on a regular growth trajectory and it'll probably correct down and 
kind of get back up to the mean. But, uh, you know, I think the good news is there's a lot more infrastructure in place for these golf course, go, golf courses, but, mm-hmm. you know, they correct. I mean, what's another analogy? You know, like shopping malls, right? I mean, shopping malls, you couldn't build enough shopping malls in the 80s. And then, you know, it just got silly. You know, we have too many shopping malls. We don't need that many shopping malls. Did shopping malls all go away? No. A lot of people were saying they were all going to go away. They didn't, but mm-hmm. you just don't need that many. You know, you kind of get to the right level. That's right. That's it. I didn't even really thought about that because in Nashville, we have like the Hickory Hollow Mall is huh? pretty much done yeah. and Rivergate's pretty much yeah. done, but Cool Springs is reasonably thriving. Yeah, Green Hills, Green Hills is, is reasonably thriving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then it's just like everything comes back to the mean. So like everybody thought that Tiger Woods was going to be the key to pushing golf into the masses. Mm-hmm into the minority sectors because at that particular point the game is already has enough of a stigma that is generally a white male game and they thought that tiger was going to be the impetus but the real issue is is the expense and the expense is not just because it's a chic sport is it costs a lot of money to keep a golf course green and playable mm-hmm. And then you have the ultimate sucker of income, which is the labor Mm -hmm. that it costs to keep it Mm -hmm. doing so. And then you divide up how many people can play in a day. And then you, that's where your guesstimation is, is what do I need to charge to make it? Mm -hmm. And that is a staggering number in in real estate. I mean, think Uh, about, I mean, if you're going into, I mean, if, if we wanted to go, you know, buy, you know, however many acres you need for a golf course, I mean, yeah. a lot yeah, in, for sure. in Nashville or close to Nashville, it'd be a fortune right now compared to 20 years ago. But 20 years ago, there weren't enough people around to be able to support it. And now there are. Yeah. So I think there's a base level. I mean, you, you know, you look at the, the storied country clubs that have been there before. I mean, one of the reasons they have staying power, cause they, you know, they bought it when it was basically free. You know, they've got the land in place of, so they've just got the variable expense. They don't have the, the base level of the real estate required to do Correct. that. And I think that that's the that's the the the, the I guess the substance that's addictive is that when you're in a public setting, you're working every day to get people in, mm-hmm. and when you're in the private sector, you're trying to create enough amenities and a quality enough golf course because it's almost always golf driven first. Mm-hmm. So that you have a guaranteed amount of people paying a guaranteed amount of money. It's just like a, it's like a condominium of golf where you're just trying to fill the rooms. Yep. And you have the X dollars every month you know that are coming in. Yep. That makes it a, a more, it's a less risky model, but it's usually a more expensive Absolutely. model too. But I do find it fascinating that it, when, you, when you told me about that you, you were involved in mm-hmm. uh, Pronghorn, that kind of got my mind thinking like, we're about ready to see another slew of pronghorns. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because there's a lot of people that have invested a lot of money in the last two years, seeing the boom, hedging their bet that the same amount of people are going to keep playing golf, and like you said, they're going to start to regress toward me because people are going back to work. Sure, there's less remote work going on. There's money's getting tighter because gas is not getting any cheaper. Food's getting like, I can't even believe the cost of food. Crazy. It is insane. Yeah. And then it starts to cut in. Uh-huh. And we're probably going to notice it big time. And that's why I think the spring is going to be big for golf. Yeah. Is that the economy largely began to like hit a stutter bump, especially in Nashville, about August. Mm-hmm. Like the, that's when like the real estate bubble kind of. It it's hit the air brakes. Yeah, like when homes were just being bought 
unseen, yeah. sight unseen, through a Zoom, cash buy, yep. and significantly above the asking price. Yes. I thought, I mean, there was that four-month window that it had to be a real estate, like, shooting fish in a barrel moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, it came down, right? So at the end of the day, golf ends for most people in early October. Yeah. And now they they won't pick it up again until right before the Masters, right around yep. late, yeah, late March. Right. Yep. So there's this five-month layoff. And in that five months, a lot of businesses have taken a punch to the face, mm-hmm. whether it's transportation costs that are making things more difficult or more expensive to get things delivered or, you know, how much time you're spending trying to make the money you need to make. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Golf is going to take a back seat and how they choose to attempt to keep the business at the COVID levels, which is, I think it's an unfair ask for people. They're trying to keep them at a, at a level that's not sustainable. And I would imagine one of the talents that you try to bring in when you're in this situation is to get people into more of a realistic frame of mind yeah. because the ego gets in the way and it could be a forecasting ego. Like you just hope, mm-hmm. like I would imagine you fix a lot of people who are in a bind because of hope. Yeah. yeah like I hope this, and, and you never want to squash hope. It's an interesting thing, especially as an optimist, but, but it's one of those, uh, you know, <laughs> One of the things that's interesting is trying to understand the motivation for the person uh, that's left holding the bag in that case. Well, you know, maybe it was a hedge fund, or and I was trying to figure out, like, you know, were you the guy that did this deal? Like, did you basically bang on the table and said, "Hey, man, this is a no-brainer because we're going to have so many people playing golf and look at these COVID numbers, and you can take a line from here and go from there." You know, just for example, um, and then you know it didn't happen, right? And then you go back and you go to the same person and. Are they hanging on? Do they really want to be more right than they want to be, you know, get to the right answer? And yeah. I, that's, a, that's a fascinating dynamic. And, and listen, it's human beings. So maybe they're f- afraid for their job. Maybe they're afraid for their bonus. Like whatever it is that's, mm-hmm. that's driving that. But you got to get to the bottom of that because I think that, you know, particularly, you know, related to, you know, golf that we're talking about right now, I think there's a lot of optimism. Um, and, you know, a lot of really smart thinking. And if, if you think about the people who are making the decisions, these are people that are used to being the smartest guy in the room yeah. for the most part. I mean, they're commanding huge checkbooks and managing lots of different, uh, you know, personalities on the other side. Mm-hmm. And they're not used to being wrong. And for you to say, you know, hey, guys, I, I screwed up. Like, that's that's uh, that's something interesting. And it, it's, it's actually something I'm fascinated with because – you know, being from California originally, and then, you know, I work with folks all over the country now, but, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, very different, right? I mean, they're, you know, that model, they, they miss eight for 10 and they're, they're, that's just the way it works. But, you know, those two out of 10 that work, I mean, they really work, you know, it's a, it's a hundred X very different than, you know, think a bank or a hedge fund, you know, they're trying not to lose money. Even Warren Buffett, one of my idols, I mean, they, they aim not to lose money. And it's a really different dynamic, um, but you know, there's there's kind of a bravado going on in Silicon Valley about all their failures. You know, it's kind of like a, maybe it's virtue signaling. Who knows? But you know, they some some of uh, these firms have you know their greatest misses. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's companies they missed on investing or their greatest failures, things they thought were going to you know Friendster instead of Facebook or you know whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, but that I mean. 
for, for all their faults, I kind of like that, that, you know, they, they know that they mess up and they're going to move on and they're not hanging on so tight. Uh, now some people could say that's also a little bit cruel, right? Cause yeah. you're, you're crushing someone's dreams. If you're just saying, Hey, this didn't work. I'm out. Uh, as opposed to this approach of I'm going to hang on, you know, in my cold, you know, with a cold dead hands, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's the opposite of that. Boy, what a dilemma that that particular place is, is knowing when to get out. Oh, yeah. And I think that to me, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by knowing when to get out, mm-hmm. which is what got my first question so intrigued, is like, that is interim. Mm-hmm. It's like oh, yeah. knowing when your strengths have reached and it's time to transition the power to somebody who does things that are required in the next phase of this business. Yep. That's their strengths. Yep. And I'm like, I sit back and look over my career and I mean, for listeners that follow, I did one recently with Matt white, who is in the culture index. And he was clearly showing signs of like what it takes to get to the top. Isn't necessarily what it takes to stay at the top. Yep. And the mindset, the, the, what it takes to move a company from two million to a hundred million isn't what it takes to take one from a hundred million to five hundred million. Yeah. And like and learning how to scale is maybe takes the CEO out oh, and, yeah. and puts him in a maybe on a board role because they're gonna have to have a different skill set to amplify it five X from a hundred hundred million when somebody just took it fifty X from two to a hundred. Oh yeah. But the numbers are more staggering. From a hundred to five hundred. Oh yeah, 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 much bigger. Well, I mean, I mean, there's all sorts of books written. About, I mean, I think I don't know if you ever read it, but the uh, the Peter Thiel book uh, Zero to One. Uh, it's one of my favorites, but you know, it, it it really talks about the difference of taking something from zero to one as opposed to one to two or two to three, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And, and Peter Thiel's got his uh, you know his friends and his enemies out there, but it's a fascinating read either yeah. way. Um, but I think that's a totally different skill, and it's something I've identified along the way with me is you know I like starting something you know i like growing something i lose interest pretty quickly after that yeah. uh, that was a lesson hard learned because you want to hold on to that mm-hmm. now i have a interesting bird's eye view because i see it you know in the people that i work with is you know you know a guy who just moved to here in nashville recently he wrote, he wrote a book uh, what got you here won't get you there uh, it was marshall goldsmith mm-hmm. brilliant book and uh it's exactly that you know it's a different skill set along the way and how do you get from here to there but I think there's this romance, right, of of looking at Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or yeah. whoever it is who are just these titans of industry and these heroes who have taken it from yeah. zero. When you say almost outlier, is that a, is that a word that you'd use? Of hundred percent. Yeah, they're yeah, outliers. I mean, well, no, it's like man, I I'd love to be Aaron Judge, but you can't see me here. But I ain't six seven and I can't hit the ball six hundred feet. It's yeah. just not going to happen. Yeah. And. You know, I could try my might, but I can't do that. And I, and I put those guys in that bucket. I mean, for all, every little leaguer, and I, I was one of them too. You know, well, you want to be a pro baseball player, whatever it is. So, you know, sometimes that's just not in the cards. And there are truly special people with, you know, freak genius attributes, total outliers. Aaron yeah. Judge is an outlier. Elon Musk is an outlier. I mean, those aren't, it's hard to emulate. I mean, you yeah. can emulate some of those things, but I can't process like he processes. I can't hit a ball like Aaron Judge hits a ball. You know, it's just a different thing. Yeah. That is so true. Well, you are the author of Don't Be a Stranger, and we've, we talked about our, our both of our fascinations of plowing through books on an annual basis. How did being a voracious reader 
allow you to write the book that you would be willing to put out. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things that, like, there's one thing to write a book, so to speak, but then there's another one to put it out. It's funny, it, you know, I, and I still don't uh, identify as an author. You know, it, it just, it's kind of a theme for my life and career, I suppose, but it was kind of by mistake. Um, it, you know, I actually wrote it for my employees because, you know, the, and I'm not trying to promote the book, but the, you know, what the book is about is basically how, you know, how I manage my relationships to help me build my business. And, and I think that's largely been the reason, uh, that I've been able to achieve any success I've had. So I, I kind of wanted to read it, you know, write it for the 20 year old version of myself uh, oh, or, nice. or my employees who, who may struggle with some of those things. Um, you know, of course, as kind of the entrepreneur, I first tried to start a business around it, and it failed spectacularly just because I didn't know what I was doing. And mm-hmm. you know, this is one of the branches on the tree that I took a swing at, and then or tried to jump at, and I just missed, missed. <laughs> and fell yeah. on my chest, uh, knocked the knocked the wind out of me. But I was I was telling that story to a guy, uh, and it was, a buddy of mine introduced me to another guy, and uh, I was just kind of telling the story about it, and. He was like, you know, that's that's really cool. You should write a book about that. And I was like, I don't know how to write a book. I read a lot, but I don't know how to write a book. He's like, I can help you. And, and uh, let me call my publishing guy. And he had written a couple of books. And I honestly didn't know that. But mm-hmm. he had written a couple of books. And then he said, let me call my publishing company. He just texted him. He was like, hey, there's a guy I want you to talk to. And then uh, I talked to him, you know, the next day or something like that. And he was like, yeah, we can help you do that. And I was like, well, how does this work? He's like, I'll walk you all through it. And I mean, it was it was as simple as that. It was very much ready fire aim <laughs> yeah. as opposed to, you know, it's not like I had this story I had to get out in my life, uh, but it was fun. Um, and I felt like I had something to say. I felt like I had a way I wanted to say it. And then, uh, and then they made it easy on me. The publishing company was great. So they made it as easy as possible on me um, and kept me out of my own way yeah. in some way. And, and once it got going, then it just got going. And then, I mean, then it was crazy. We launched it, which was a big step because, you know, it was kind of like the secret project I had. Because, I mean, you can't help but feel a little bit like a, you know, egomaniac putting a book about, you know, a philosophy you've got, mm-hmm. especially when I was, you know, 43, 44 years old, whenever it came out. But, you know, then I kind of came out of the closet and put, you know, put this book out in the world. And then it got bestseller status. And it was like, and then you get, it's, it's, it's the, you know, and I, I donate all the proceeds to charity. I, I don't, I don't do it for money or anything, yeah. but, but when, uh, it's been so interesting cause it's like every uh, couple of weeks I'll get like an email from someone or, you know, a note, uh, LinkedIn, something in, and they'll say, Oh my God, this book has such an impact on me. I can't believe and it, it. It's got it. It's such a weird feeling that, you know, you took something out of your, out of the air and, you know, processed it through your prefrontal cortex and, you know, developed it into words on a page and it had an impact on someone's life. And it's just been, it's been really fun, but weird. I can't tell how often I have conversations with clients about the difficulty in hiring talented business professionals. I tell them all the same thing. It's no different than working on your golf game. Trust your local pro. If you're in Nashville, Tennessee, there's no better resource than SHR Talent. They partner with top organizations in Music City to attract, successfully close, and onboard candidates across their core competencies of accounting and finance, tech, HR, and marketing. Contact SHR Talent today shrtalent.com. That's shrtalent.com. Remember, the future depends on your talent. Yeah, I think that the, you know, for me, I've, I've, I've written three, right? And the, the thing is, is that we get 
much like we've been talking about, we get excited about hopefully impacting millions of people. Yeah. But at the end of the day, impacting somebody's life changes the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, that's the thing. I don't. I don't pretend to think that I'm going to be Joe Rogan uh-huh. by doing this. Yeah. But I. I do know that I get messages occasionally that the person that I interviewed told a story that was so impactful to them. Thank you for doing it. And I mean, Rogan does it on a scale that's just so impressive. Yeah, I'm mean, so, a huge fan of his. I, I love. So yeah. man, his last couple have been so amazing too. Yeah. And and I just think you know I don't have to be Joe Rogan to feel like I've done something good. Not at all. And that's what I think that's so interesting. But one of the things that that in the subtitle, create your own luck in business through strategic relationship building. Strategic relationship building. That's headed toward the Smithsonian Institute <laughs> of in the, in the probably the under twenty eight world right now. They don't know how to do that. It's a it's a yeah, it's, it's a it's, I think it's a crisis in some ways. It really is yeah. a big crisis. And I was wondering, like, tell me a story about strategic relationship building that put you in the place that you're in right now. I mean, I've, I've got. Hundreds. I mean, I, I, I mean, the basic theme I have is that, I mean, in anything we do, I mean, you're a business owner, I'm a business owner, you know, you could have the best business on work, but if no one knows about it, you know, good luck. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. need to, and I don't care how good your website is. I don't care how good your, you know, Instagram is, you know, someone's got to know what's going on and, and be able to find you and, and ultimately like you. Yeah. you know, if you're, if you're a jerk and you could be the best golf pro on earth, but if you're a jerk, I don't care. It ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I can give an example, but the, um, I mean, I, I talk about it in the book, but I, I remember when I first started the business, so this was like 2006, um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know, I was just 29 years old. I was, you know, fed up with working for someone else and, you know, gosh darn it, I can do better than that. So I remember going to, uh, I remember going to this, uh, like one of these terrible, like cocktail party things, sure. uh, and, you know, you have to pay to go and the bad drinks and all the appetizers are out, a bunch of people in the room. I don't know who anybody is and I'm young and everyone's older and it was just, it was just kind of scary, but you know, I kind of just end up going and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to meet one guy, you know, one guy, if I can get one business card, I, I going to get out of here and it was raining and I did yeah, all those things. So I go and, and I got the name, I got the card and he's still a friend of mine. It's a guy named John. And then I, so I met John and and he's not even really in my business, um, but you know he's around and he's a good guy. And and what I met him on was not like okay, you're going to throw a bunch of business at me, and I'm going to throw a bunch of business at you, and we're going to make all this money. It it was you know maybe we can be helpful, right? And, and yeah. I remember his kid went to the same high school I went to, so there was a little bit of connection. He was a funny guy. I thought I was funny enough. So anyway, long story short, yeah, I stayed in touch, and you know I, I went and got you know, breakfast with them or something a couple of days later. And, and I liked him. We, we got along. And then, you know, I don't know, two months later or something, a friend of a friend of his said, Hey, there's a company that needs some help. I think this is kind of what you do. You should go talk to this guy. So I go end up working with this company and, uh, and do a good job. But there was another guy working at that company who was vaguely in the same business. And, you know, I stayed in touch with John and then there was another guy, his name happened to be John too. I guess that's I don't know what it is, but this other guy, John, and and I was working closely with him. Great, great guy. We got to be friends. He puts me in touch with another company and says, hey, you should go work with this guy. 
and uh, and and we all kind of stayed friends, and then and then I went to work with this other company. And long story, so similar theory, you know, call it maybe two or three steps removed. They bought my company, it, like you know, because of a relationship that I met literally at this first cocktail party. The second day I was in business, you know, I can map almost directly how I got to the sale of my company. You know, I subsequently bought it back and we've grown a ton since then. But yeah. I mean, that was a big event in my life. And, yeah, and yeah. it was quick, by the way. It was, you know, less than four years. But it was all just strategically staying in touch. I mean, it, it, you know, it, I feel like there's this like dirty word. It's like you're using people and, and it's not that. And I, th- I feel like networking in some ways is a dirty word. I remember when I was in school, they had a class on networking. I was like, Ugh, like, I don't, yeah, this feels gross to me. Yeah. And it's not that, but it's just being a decent human being. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I reach out to you for questions on stuff and, and, and you can, I hope people reach out to me all the time and it has nothing to do with business stuff. Maybe it's business stuff. Maybe it's, Hey, I'm, I'm in town. Where should I go to dinner? It doesn't yeah. really matter. But I think, it, you know, people thinking of you, the concept that I talk about in that is, is it's uh I call it strategic serendipity. You know, everyone knows what serendipity is being in the right place at the right time, yep. but you kind of want to strategically be there. Like you don't want to be the guy sitting, you know, in your parents' bedroom, yep. um, you know, that, or, you know, basement, you know, playing video games. Cause no one's going to know that you're there. Like you got to put yourself out there uh, for people to find you. So I think just being intentional about putting yourself out there a little bit, that's, yeah, that's huge. the strategic side of it. It's, yeah. it's intentionality. It's not just letting it go to chance, like being on top of it. Cause I think, I mean, even, you know, I've read all these books about, you know, it's a fascinating genre, but, you know, these people that talk about their reflections on their deathbed, right? You know, you have mm-hmm. these hospice workers or monks or whoever who are like you know, priests talking to people on their deathbed. And relationships are kind of the only thing that matters at the yeah. end of the day. But people treat them like trash. You know, they, they, they don't manage it. You know, they don't, they don't take care of their relationship. They don't tend to their field, you know, yeah. and I think it's just dumb. 100%. Like, to me, one of the first books that made an impact on me was The Celestine Prophecy. Like, you don't meet anybody by accident. Mm-hmm. And, and if, like, uh, the picture that they paint early in the in that book is that you're on an airplane. Yeah. And if you don't take the time to introduce yourself and get to at least know that person, there's a weird chemistry that put that person right beside you that oh, day. Yeah. Why are they there? And you should at least take the time to find out what their name is and what they do. And just a five minute conversation. You never know where it can go. I, I totally agree. And yeah. I can't tell I mean, you just told a great story. I have so many stories of why did I even open my mouth other than I was so impacted by that book. And the first time I tried it, it had huge power oh, yeah. of success. Yeah. And I tried it again and I tried it again. It became a habit. Yep. So now like, and I'm, it's weird because I know that I'm an extrovert when I get going. Mm-hmm. I'm the same way. Yeah. But like, I'm introverted at the beginning. I walk into a room, even if it's a room full of golf professionals, and I'll be more of the on the outside looking in yeah. guy, yeah. just kind of watching the room. And I, once again, I was taught to listen more than talk, to pay attention more than to draw attention. Yep. And, but as I get going, it'll only take that one person to ask me a question, and then I'll talk, and then another person will come over because that person knew the other yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. And next thing you know, you got nine or ten people around you, and now people are asking you, like, how did you get to there? How did you yeah, yeah. How did you go from being a golf teacher to having podcasts and writing books and this and that? Because everybody's looking to 
diversify and have more than one income stream. But much like you said, like, I don't know how to write a book. Well, that's what Drew Maddox said to me <laughs> when I met Drew the first time. He's like, man, how, how cool is it that you wrote a book, man? I would, I feel like I want to write a book, but I don't know how to. I'm like, yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you got to take action. Yeah. You just got to take one step forward. Oh, 100%. And if you can't see that you're an author, but you know you can write, well, you just take one step, and you take another step. Yeah. And then you take another step. Don't take the whole flight of stairs in one step. Just Not going to work. Get there one step at a time. And like, we talk about it on, on our podcast, Drew and mine. He's like, you told me that I could do it. And I knew that I could do it, but I was afraid that I couldn't do it. Yep. And writing a book with somebody else is really different than writing a book by yourself. Yeah. And I would tell you that, you know, it's definitely personal when you're when it's just your brain. Oh yeah. But man, is it a different ball game when you do it with somebody else? Oh no, I think it, uh, yeah. Listen, I think. I mean, people make the world go round, right? I mean, I, yeah. I think if you can get help on something, and you, and I, I think you can get help on anything. I think one of the things I've learned: people generally want to help. Yeah. I, I, I really think they do. I mean, okay, maybe there's money associated, maybe there's not. A lot of times there's not, but I think that I think by and large people want to help you out. It, but mm. you got to ask. Like, and if they don't know you want help, they ain't going to know. To help you. So yeah. I, it's putting yourself out there. I mean, it's all these things you read about, you know, vulnerability and putting yourself out there, taking the step, limiting beliefs. All these things are totally true. Yeah. Uh, but I think that a lot of people get wrapped up in their own ego or wrapped up in their, I don't know, their facade of what they think they are and what they aren't. And, uh, yeah, I... I it's funny because I kind of fancy myself a little counterculture, even though I'm about as, you know, right down the middle as possible. Yeah. But there's a big part of me that's just uh, be different because I, th- I think if you do things differently, then you get different stuff. I mean, you know, all the expressions, yeah. but I th- I th- I just put yourself out there. It goes a long way. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm, I'm learning to do, understand better, this is really powerful. And I was told this by uh, probably maybe one of the greatest coaches in all of Tennessee athletics. His name is Ricky Bowers. And he said that, you know, dealing with people individually, there's hardly a bad individual. Oh, yeah. But when you put people in groups, they sacrifice their individuality to conform to maybe the alpha's perspective. And they go against their self just to fit in because it's, one of the most important things for humans is to feel desired or wanted to be in a group being accepted. He said, that's where you got to be careful. You have to be really careful because you've taught all of these kids individually, but you're going to see a huge difference when they're all together, how different it is to coach a team versus it is to coach Mm. an individual. And, I'm like, whatever. This is golf. <laughs> it's there have to be their own individual game. Yeah. But what I really, really, really misvalued was how a group of kids would choose to practice, how differently they would choose to practice and prepare versus if they were by themselves. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if does that relate to you in your business where you're around these brilliant minds, but when you put them in a boardroom, they're very, very different 
or you put up the whole C-suite together to chase this particular problem that's on the horizon and how they, some people will acquiesce even though they have the answer and some people have no idea what the heck they're talking about and they're the alpha dog and it totally ruins things. How do you navigate the individual versus the team on the business side? Uh, it's, it's a very insightful question. Uh, and it's kind of one of the secret sauce things that's out there. I mean, I think if you're going to a board board meeting or any really meeting without knowing what's going to happen, it's a bad meeting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I spend an awful lot of time working the back channel, um, knowing kind of where everyone is pulling the room before you even get there, uh, taking people's temperature. So then by the time you get to the actual meeting, it's almost perfunctory. You know, people know what's going to happen. No one's going to step out of line. And even, even if you don't know exactly everybody in the room, uh, you can get to enough people in the room that, you know, the expectations are set in such a way that it's not going to be, you know, like a bonfire, you know, something's not going to get out of control. Yeah. Um, so I spend a lot of time with that. And, and I think with groups in general, I'm big on finding the key influencers in the group. And, and maybe it's not the CEO. It could be, you know, someone on the shop floor who's just influential and has a lot of respect. Uh, I think finding those centers of influence, because I mean, listen, if I'm running a company of 2,500 employees, I can't get to everyone. And, and you know, chances are 2,450 of them don't want to talk to me. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm the boss guy in there. It's a different thing. You know, but, you know, if you can get to the people that matter and, and, and it's not just getting to them, but, you know, be true to yourself, you know, do the right thing, yeah. you know, all the, all the, the good stuff, you got to yeah. do all that stuff. Uh, but, you know, I think even in, when you're addressing 2,500 people, uh, you need to get to the right centers of influence to make that right. I, you know, feels like I'm changing subjects or not, but I think that's one of the things that's so pernicious about social media in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. you don't know ultimately who's out there. I mean, A, you, know, a, you don't know if they're human beings or robots. Like, that's right. That's one thing. But also, there's none of this social fabric between things. It's been plumbed into our DNA for thousands of years, you know, yeah. millions of years maybe. And you don't know that how those reactions are going to work. I thought that was really fascinating. I mean, you could coach, you know, one, one, you know, boy or one girl, and then you coach a whole team. It's a very different dynamic. I hadn't really thought about that, but it's, you know, you see, you can see that in all sorts of human interactions, sure. boardrooms, companies, my employees, uh, you know, all, all sorts of people. And, I much prefer the one-on-one because I oh, think yeah. you can understand things. And I don't think it's just like body language. I mean, yeah, body language matters, you know, tone matters. That's why I hate texting, you know, like mm-hmm. all those things matter. Um, but I, but I think there's something, some indescribable fabric between people that you can understand each other a lot more. You could actually have a conversation. Oh yeah. Eye, eye contact and face to face is so critical. Yeah. I mean, it's even a big, it's a huge difference between you and I sitting here. And if I was doing this in a zoom. Oh yeah, absolutely. So different. Yeah. Well, the most popular part as it pertains to the responses that I get to this podcast is uh, my segment on perseverance. And generally speaking, life's got a sucker punch for us <laughs> occasionally. And my question is always, what is it that one thing that you persevered through that while you were going through it, you didn't know that you were going to make it through it? It was scary as hell. But when you got to the other side and you realized that you kept going, you stayed true to yourself and you just persevered through it, that now you can handle any problem that comes your way. What is that one moment in your life that you persevered through that has allowed you the strength and grit to plow through difficult moments because you know you're going to come out on the other side? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not one. It's, I mean, it's probably multiple. But, I mean, starting a business is tough. I mean, especially if you're trying to, to grow and, and, you know, do, do, do what we're trying to do. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so many times we were almost broke. Really? I mean, so many times we were almost broke and, and, you know, I, I was lucky. I had good parents and, and, you know, we were, you know, solid, but we weren't rich, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't have a trust fund or anything like that. You know, sure. I, I was a self-starter, um, you know, bootstrapper, you know, I, I don't think I was ever going to be on skid row if it didn't work, but you know, it was, it was not, you know, I didn't have a, a war chest, you know, yeah. so, and I started the business when I was 29 and I'd have some success, but not, you know, not venture capital, private equity success. It was, you know, bootstrapped. Mm. Uh, and then along the way, you know, man, I mean, you're hiring employees and people are expensive and you're trying to grow and maybe a customer doesn't pay you. I mean, I mean, there were multiple times on the way up that, you know, I was sweating payroll pretty hard and I'd already put just about everything I had into the business. And, uh, it always worked out and I had faith that it was going to work out. And, you know, I had (laughs) maybe not plan B, but kind of plan B through Q, you know, I didn't have like one thing I could switch to make it all work out, but I could probably scrap around and hustle. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the lesson is that I'm not sure what the lesson is. I mean, I think the lesson is, I think that a entrepreneurialism is hard, yeah. uh, absolutely worth it, but hard yep. know that that's going to, you're going to get kicked in the face a couple of times just because I don't care what you do. It's probably going to happen. Um, but then I think you, you fundamentally have to have a faith in yourself that you're going to figure it out. And maybe, maybe you don't know how you're going to figure it out, but you'll figure it out. Um, and I, you know, I, I've been on this kind of journey for the last handful of years of trying to, you know, understand myself a little bit better. And it, it's kind of retrospective, but and done a lot of coaching and things like that. But, you know, one of the things that I feel like I've been blessed with, and maybe, maybe this is the right answer to your question is, is I, uh, I tend not to catastrophize things, mm. you know, what's really going to happen. Okay. I miss payroll. Like someone going to die. No, like, you know, am, am I going to jail? No, I'm not going to go to jail. You might have to pay some money to someone later. Yeah. Will I be able to figure that out? Probably, you know, so really, really, really what happens, you know, yeah. as long as you didn't do something terrible. I mean, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, you yeah. know, terrible things. Don't do those anyway. Yeah. But that's probably the biggest lesson is this too shall pass. Uh, you know, I've been, I'm going to sound weird, but I've been, um, really reading, uh, a lot about stoicism mm-hmm. lately, Ryan holiday, stuff. Ryan holiday stuff and anything oh, I can so find good. on it. And I mean, they call it kind of the businessman's philosophy. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the, my introduction to philosophy, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, I Anne Rand, um, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, what's your favorite one of her? Well, Fountainhead is one of my you yeah. know, favorite of all time, but you know, my, my daughter's name is Dagny after the Atlas truck. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I took it to heart and I think it had a huge impact on my life, but you know, she wrote this book that wasn't very well read, but it was called, you know, why the businessman needs philosophy. Um, and it and it's pretty smart, and it's not trying to espouse her particular philosophy, but I, but I look, you know, I found stoicism, you know, relatively recently in the last couple of years, but it really is that, you know, focus on what you can focus on. Okay, so you miss payroll, uh, who's no one's dying, it's going to be all right, you know. So you screw up a deal, okay? What really really happens? Is it going to mess up your family? Is it going to mess up your kids? No, you know, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was always in me a little bit. I've I've worked it a little bit more. So I'm a little bit better at it. Uh, I think it's frustrating some people because some people want you to be pissed. I feel like some yeah. people want you to freak out 
and I just don't do it. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's honestly challenging for, uh, sometimes family relationships. Cause sometimes families and other things, they want drama, they want excitement. And if you don't engage in that, they're like, you know, what the hell's wrong with you? Don't you care? It's like, no, I care, but what am I going to do about this? Yeah. Essentially, <laughs> it's my favorite movie is gladiator. Oh yeah. And Marcus Aurelius obviously plays a role in it. Yeah. Right. And I'd had no clue until my deep dive into holiday. Yeah. He's through awesome. Rogan. Yeah. But uh, uh, his podcast with Rogan was really good. Amazing. And then I'm like, wait a second. Marcus Aurelius is the one of the original oh, Stoics? And I'm like, he he's worked. like the OG. Like, yeah. Like, and I'm like, <laughs> so like, I just find it so fascinating how like life intertwines itself. Yeah. It's like I'm entertained by a movie that I still think is the greatest movie of all time. Uh-huh. And within it, I, I, I latch on the Russell Crowe's character. Yeah. But in the background of the whole movie... Yeah. is a fundamental that I'm trying to place in my in my life yep. that is a, a really tiny subplot to the whole movie, but it's actually the whole movie. Yeah. Oh, no, I think it's totally true. And I'm like, that blew my mind. So I was just like, the Marcus Aurelius piece. His meditations, I mean, if you ever read it, it's... It, it's some of the smartest writing that's ever. It's unbelievable. It's, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but our founding fathers, like of the United States, were they were all Stoics. Yeah. I mean, they they were writing that stuff. I mean, look at all the buildings in mm-hmm. DC. I mean, they were they were big into that stuff. And I think, thank goodness, right? I, I think mean, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in because I'm now I'm uh, just like you were. You're just, you almost read my mind. <laughs> the next person I'm really intrigued by is probably maybe the most underrated person in our country's history is george washington uh i just read his uh his biography relatively recently that it's a big one i, th- I think uh, it was isaacson i can't remember who wrote yes, it. yes that's funny i'm pretty sure it's man awesome. is good Tra- complicated guy though yeah yeah he, he was always my interpretation of it, i mean he was you know obviously terribly prolific and thank goodness he was who he was but he always had a chip on his shoulder he was he was kind of fancied as this you know gentry landed man you know he he was scrapping man yeah like, he was trying to trying to push and also you know complicated i mean maybe a huge ego maybe an egomaniac i mean he was he was journaling his history from the time he was like 25 years old which i mean can you imagine seeing a 25 year old now walking around chronicling your history for i mean i'd look at that guy and punch him in the nose yeah <laughs> what are you doing man? yeah that's so fascinating. Really, he's fascinating, dude. Yeah, yeah. and I, Isaacson is such a great author, man. He has written some of the greatest biographies. It's cheating. It's cheating how well he writes. <laughs> it's, that's, that's exactly <laughs> right. He's Aaron Judge of writing. Well, exactly. it, it's like Michael Lewis. I, don't know, I, I mean, I, I mean, my most exciting thing for, for whatever it comes out is I, I know Michael Lewis was in the process of uh, profiling uh, Sam Bakeman Freed, you know, SBF, uh-huh. uh, before this whole thing went down. He was embedded when this all collapsed, right? So it's going to be like that Icarus movie, you know, on Netflix, Uh but he's going to be in the middle of it with perhaps the best nonfiction writer alive right now, you know, chronicling that. I can't wait for that to come out. Man, talk about something that is, (laughs) you know, I was just listening to a podcast there actually with Rogan. That's actually talking about the collapse of SBX and how fast and how cryptocurrency, like this could be the death knell of what we see as cryptocurrency. Crazy. Yeah. And, um, I'm always fat because I don't know much about cryptocurrency other than, you know, what, what probably is surface value info. But like there, like that's a very fascinating 
story that's going to come out is how oh, yeah. he was using, he was robbing Peter to pay Paul. Oh, yeah. It's a Ponzi. I mean, and it was a Ponzi scheme yeah. and totally went through, I mean, $10 billion in a, like, two weeks. Yeah. That's an epic fail. Yeah. Well, it's funny because given what I do for a living, I, I've been around some of these big grifters and I'm, and I, you know, I haven't been around SBF or anything yeah. like that, but, but I'm trying to take this lens of, you know, I've seen some bad dudes and then you, you take that lens and I'm like, yeah, that might, I could be that, you know, mm-hmm. he's got, he's got all the earmarks of a hustle, you yeah. know, he's got the, the virtues on one side and the character and the demeanor and the, you know, the, the voice and every, everything else about it. And, Man, it's a pretty elaborate hustle, but I think it's a hustle. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> he's really smart, <laughs> real smart, and they like Madoff, really smart, real had smart, a really complex. Yeah, until it comes crumbling down, and yeah. then, man, it's harrowing. I know. Yeah, it is harrowing. I know. That's a that's an unbelievable story right there. Yeah, yeah, oh, Madoff yeah. story. Yeah. Well, the second half of the show is the things that you do to recharge your batteries. So we've definitely covered what it is that drains your batteries. Yeah, yeah. Historically speaking sociologically and psychologically speaking, it's the things that bring a lot of like-minded people together to help recharge, which is why 100,000 people show up to watch USC play Penn State in a, in a Rose Bowl, or yeah, yeah. why 85,000 people show up to see Guns N' Roses play after they haven't played in 15 years. It's a, it's a community piece that brings people's spirit back up. When you think back to your, you know, the, the, the foundations of your life and where you project yourself to who are the bands and the music that you were listening to when you were growing up growing up jane's addiction was probably probably high school because that was that was kind of of the era you know i was you know high school class in 1995 so that that was kind of the grunge era and it was you know nirvana i love smashing pumpkins i like you know jane's addiction uh you know prior to that you know it was probably you know you, you kind of went through lots of different cycles. I I went through my rap phase. I went through, you know, country. I went through a whole bunch of different things, but I think kind of the, the most nostalgic, I suppose, would probably be that, uh, that kind of nineties era grunge stuff and a little bit of the hair bands, but more that nineties era grunge. It's interesting how impactful Perry Farrell has been (laughs) in the music world. since. He's a genius. Yeah. Yeah. Bizarrely weird. Oh, but unbelievably visionary for, where music was going mm-hmm. when Lollapalooza kicked off. No, and, and, and I mean, and prolific too. I mean, obviously beyond just what he was doing in music, but, you know, writing poetry, but it, and, you know, kind of the creative stuff. But I mean, debatably, if really smart, I mean, Coachella doesn't exist if Lollapalooza didn't start, right? 100%. Or, or you know, pick, pick your huge festival. And, yeah. and even maybe the, the broader, I mean, where are musicians making money? Touring, right? I mean, may, and maybe he saw that, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think he thinks in webs, you know, more than straight lines. Sure. Like, but maybe he saw the Matrix somehow, chemically induced or otherwise. But he, <laughs> but he, but he, but he, but he saw the, he saw it. And, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think those were kind of my touchstone bands. But I'm pretty equal opportunity. I'm, I'm you know, I, I love music, but I'm not like a music guy. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have, I don't spend hours agonizing on my Spotify playlist or trying to get the right record player to get the right sound. I just, it's kind of a, uh, was it, it's kind of a soundtrack to life as opposed to yeah. a, you know, something I obsess on. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wish I liked it more, but uh, but or not not liked more. I like it, but I wish I cared about it more. But it's more. You know, I, I can I can appreciate a lot of it, and I like having it around. Yeah, it's kind of like this background noise that has its arm around you, hugging you while you're walking from yeah. point A to point B. Yeah, it, it, but it's funny because it, it you know it is an earworm, right? I mean, like, it, and maybe it's just a you know circumstance of being around long enough. But you know a lot of songs. <laughs> yeah. You know, you 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 wake up and and 
you can go through on Spotify and you know you're kind of playing half-assed DJ and you can you, you know a lot. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, I find it fascinating. I, I use music to enhance moods or shift states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm always I tell people I've probably said this on the show a bunch is like anytime that I'm angry about the situation, whether it's self-induced or induced by others, I listen to Pantera <laughs> because every time that I'm angry and I listen to, I have like four or five songs that I, I listen yeah. to on purpose about song three. I'm like, I know my guy got a bad deal, yeah. but I ain't nothing as bad as this guy. I, I ain't that angry. Yeah. He, this guy is mad yeah. and the and he's not just screaming. He's telling a story and it is, I'm like, wow. Yeah. And then like every now and again, you know, when I need to have a chip on my shoulder, like I think like Tupac or 50 oh. Cent, the oh, yeah. early 50 Cent yeah. songs, yeah. have a chip on their shoulder oh, yeah. that kind of get your head in the right place to tackle something that you need to go. Up, I'm with you. I'm gonna imp- I use it as an impetus yeah. like to help me get where I want to go. Yeah. And obviously, most of the time, I'm getting where I want to go in my car, mm-hmm. and it's easy <laughs> for me to get four or five songs where I need it to get. Yeah. And I think that that's where music is for is for me. What's the best concert you've ever been to? Uh, I'm trying to think. I saw Pink Floyd once, you know, at the Rose Bowl, which was which was really 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 cool. I can only um, imagine. It's a dream for me. I haven't seen Floyd. Yeah, they, I, I, that was pretty special. Um, I saw the White Stripes once at the Greek Theater, uh, and I didn't really. I, I knew their music a little bit, but I didn't really know how like powerful they were. That that was an unbelievable show. I saw Jane's Addiction at this very weird venue once, uh, like, uh, and it was it was kind of a reunion show. I think they needed some money, so they you know brought yeah. the band back. Was together. Flea playing bass? Flea was, the, yeah, yeah, I think it was his first concert where he was playing oh, bass, um, nice. and he came, he popped in and. It was, I think it was honestly probably not a very good show, but it was just like the energy and the power, and it was so cool around that. That was, that was really fun too. Yeah. Well, as a USC Trojan, <laughs> I'm sure that your, a lot of your greatest sports memories occur around. Because I would imagine you were there at at a pretty good time for USC. Not quite at the Reggie Bush Matt Lyer right, right. days, but you know the Keyshawn Johnson times yep. and things like that. Talk to me a little bit about. Uh, your time at USC and and what the USC Trojans and all of their sports, how they impacted your life. Yeah, it was, it was a funny time in my life because you know I think that's a funny time for a lot of people's life that eighteen to twenty one you know mm. era. Uh, I was in a hurry, um, so I, I probably didn't get the full. You know, I graduated college in three years. You know, I, uh-huh. I, I was really in a hurry, and and yeah. some of it was family circumstances, and some of it was just who you are being in a hurry. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, as far as SE goes, I, you know, I probably didn't take advantage as much as I, as I could have, would have, but, it, but funny as it relates to sports, it, it rang true. Um, and, and I, I, <laughs> it's funny. I was, so, it, it, they stunk when I was there. Uh, so that was late John Robinson to, oh, and it. then they, they won the Rose bowl my freshman year. And then they were pretty terrible. Um, and then Pete Carroll came in right afterwards. And, and, you know, that, that saga, that told, story was fantastic and that was kind of my early 20s was watching the rise i mean that was so much fun yeah. and probably an unhealthy usc fan as always i mean it was you know <laughs> to the point where i quit i mean it was almost like you know like uh-huh. almost like substance abuse you know i i went bananas like if they if they won i was like vaguely satisfied because i thought they should win by 100 yeah. and i'm not like oh it was a good game you know we gave it our best efforts or at least in sports it's it's a huge frustration for me overall but, but 
you know, if they won, it was acceptable. If they lost, it was, you know, furious, like, like fury. And, uh, and then I, I, at a certain point, especially after, you know, they got copper cheating and all the terrible things that happened and the, you know, near death penalty, uh, I had to quit cause it was just so frustrating. Yeah. I, was just, I was like, I can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I had this great run where, I mean, they didn't lose a game for whatever, five, six years. I mean, yeah. It was so fun. And you know, it, it was also a fun age to be cause we traveled to games. We went to Auburn and we went to Arkansas, we went all these cool places to, and, and especially being, I mean, California guys are soft. So we came out from California and then mm-hmm. you just stomp some of these, you know, Southern teams or the Midwestern teams and you go out there and it just felt really fun and good. And, yeah. and it was fun to do that. So I had this great relationship there. You know, I can't say I'm a huge basketball, I'm you know, kind of classic USC fan. Like mm-hmm. if it's not football, it doesn't really exist type yeah. of thing. Uh, so it was really fun. And I still, I got sucked in a little bit this year and then they tempered me at the end because they weren't as good. So, yeah. you know, I think having a daughter, like, becomes a little bit more in perspective you know i don't for sure does it really matter if they lose does it really matter if they don't win by 50 you know it's okay (laughs) in some ways those diet dr pepper commercials that we see on college football fansville no yeah no i I identify with that last guy yeah yeah (laughs) that last commercial because there was a moment in time i'm similar with penn state right it just got to the point where i had not seen penn state lose but only a handful of games from like my first like thing i remember is like 1980 and you go from 80 to 95, 97. They were so good. Man, they may have lost. And there was one bad season, I remember. They lost everybody after they won the national championship yeah. the first time. They may have lost 15 times in those years. Yeah. In like 18 years, they lost 15 times. And then you get your hopes up. as the, uh, And then they lose a game that you just can't imagine that they lose. And like you die with them. And like that, that Fansville one with a guy standing right there and they're yelling at the, <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's not that big of a deal. <laughs> no, that one stuck with me because that's what I feel like right now. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's funny because I, I actually intentionally with my buddies who I was really into it with, um, I will still say, oh, like I, I see them losing. Like maybe I'm watching the game casually. I was like, oh, is USC playing today? And they're losing by like 20. I'm like, just to poke them in the rib. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would imagine, uh, I didn't, I didn't realize like I was, the bowl game, right? The bowl game. Oh yeah, they're winning by fifteen with four minutes left. I leave. Like, <laughs> oh, no, I told my wife. She came upstairs and we. Were, I was watching the game. And I said, "I think we lose this game." And she's like, "What are you talking about? It's four minutes left. They're up by 15. Like, I was like, hey, "You don't know how bad our defense is. Like, it's real bad. Like, it's like real, real." I didn't see the safety coming, but no, yeah. not many people saw that. That was the that was the most unbelievable. Yeah, but I'm just like. Those games used to like ruin my whole weekend. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. And now I'm just kind of look back at it and, and wonder. Like, I wonder why. I think is it is it self identity? Is that you're you're attributing? I think there is an interesting distinction if you talk about your team as us versus them. Yeah. You know, do you say we won the game or or they won the game? I've transitioned to saying they. Yeah. I don't play on the team. I went to school. 25 years ago like, you know like yeah. I, I got nothing to do with nothing at this point so yeah. it's not we it's yeah. they i feel like that's an interesting important psychologically at least for me I mean, god mm-hmm. bless you if you can if you can tolerate it better but for me yeah. being they is really important <laughs> yeah i think it is identification yeah you know when you're 20 years old and you're a sophomore at a powerhouse yeah you know you don't have a job you don't have a family at least hopefully you don't have a family at 20 <laughs> and you're you're in a you're the most social part of your life. Oh yeah, that you'll ever have. And you need your tribe. It's, yeah, it's your tribe. Yeah, and so it's something that everybody. Once again, kind of like the whole segment. It's like this is something that fills your cup up because you're around 
you know, maybe up to 25 to 50 people oh, yeah. and you're close knit that are bleeding the same oh, yeah. bleed, yeah. so to speak. And the rise is so good. So you're, everybody's going up together and everybody's coming down together. Yeah. And there's a whole culture around it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's all encompassing at a certain 100%. point. Yeah. So that's what, like, to me, that's, I could, cause you're like, I haven't not really gotten into a, a, a coaching relationship like I have with you, with somebody from SC. Yeah. I haven't not really met anybody from USC yeah. on a long, on like on a, on a basis that I knew that that's where yeah. they went. Uh, and while well, I was coaching them. Yeah. I, yeah. Did, I, I was looking at, I actually have two or three. Yeah. But I didn't know that they went to SC until like way, way later. Way yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just like, I find it fascinating. Like that's a, that's a big, that's a top 10 of all time program. Yeah. And at the end of the day, there's a tradition. Oh yeah. That goes with it. And, it's an it's an intoxicating feeling, oh, and, especially and it's, when you're it's young. It's so evil empire. It's beautiful, and the weather's good, and everyone's pretty, and the money, and you know, celebrity, and Star Wars. All you know, it. I mean, being objective, I would totally hate USC if, if, <laughs> <laughs> if, if I didn't. There, there's not a more abominable you know symbol of everything of excess. Especially, yeah. I mean, I think this whole NIL thing is going to be fascinating. Yes, um, it is. Because man, how does SE not lose? I mean, they've got all the components. You you know, pay money, culture, like all. Like, I don't see how they lose on that. Yes, I mean, it just looks like Duke basketball. The rich and get richer. Duke like, basketball and and USC football. Like I don't see how they lose. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Texas probably has the same claim. Hundred uh, percent. And we're going to see what Oklahoma has to say about yeah, that. Oklahoma. I mean, and then and then it's like, how much is the Catholicism of <laughs> Notre Dame going to? Throw their hat in that ring, and then every SEC school, or at least the top yeah. ten of the SEC, yep. are always going to be in that mix. And mm-hmm. you have the top of the Big Ten, and historically speaking, those are the that's the history of college football. Yes, yes, is you know USC. You know, in some ways, it's hard to believe. Like Nebraska used oh, to be one hundred percent. Oklahoma, Texas, yeah, Alabama, Auburn, yeah, LSU, Tennessee, yep, Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Notre Dame, yeah. That pretty much that's eighty five ninety percent of college football. Yes, right there. Yes, and it's and Miami, Florida State, Florida. Yeah, I mean, throw those at yeah. and then that's ninety percent of college football right there. That's the cool. That's the cool thing is that you can almost guarantee. Like when we were growing up, the top twenty five that oh. didn't shuffle very much. No. Like where they stood, maybe revolved yeah, a little bit. But the top twenty five was easy. It was like this is this. Is how yeah, it's I'm curious go. to see how the transfer portal changes it because it is almost free agency. Oh, one hundred percent. I th- I think we're also going to see how important is individual positions, right? Because I mean, if you can buy one quarterback, you know, if you can buy one left tackle, whatever it is, linebacker, it doesn't matter. You know, because I think there will be schools that could take shots at that. You know, maybe it's you know Iowa, maybe it's you know A and M, whoever can like maybe you really invest in that quarterback and pay him an awful lot of money to go there and see what they can do. Yeah. I, I, I think that's going to be an interesting thing. That's, that is going to be the dynamic that it, we have no idea yeah. the ramifications of it. Yeah. But I, I do think, you know, I see it from two sides, right? These kids have been exploited for billions of oh, dollars. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I get it. And then you're like, well, but I mean, they're getting their education and it's just their amateurs. Oh, yeah, I get it. And there's yeah. that weird back and forth. But what really flipped the apple cart was EA Sports putting the O'Bannon brothers yeah. on yeah. their basketball That's video right. yep. and simultaneously Reggie Bush on mm-hmm. the college football one. Mm-hmm. And they those companies made an enormous mm-hmm. amount of money off of their likeness. Yes. 
And when the O'Bannon brothers won, man, that just set. The, oh, that was the beginning of the end. That it, was the beginning of the end. But I tell you, the NCAA, I, I mean, I've got no dog in the hunt, but the NCAA screwed this up. Oh, I mean, oh God. I mean, they had a monopoly and decide, like overtly decided not to evolve. And listen, as a USC guy, I got no love for the NCAA, but this was a very solvable problem. I mean, yeah. video games aren't new. Television <laughs> isn't new. Like yeah. you, could, you, you could see all the money coming through. You could have figured out a better answer here. And easy for me to say from the cheap seats, but still, I mean, come on. Like, yeah. This is a quintuple bogey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is two balls out of bounds and a ball in the water. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, qua- a quintuple bogey. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, another hot button or exciting piece for me because I, I claim to know about three things in life, and one of them is wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being from California, which is certainly mm-hmm. the best mm-hmm. area in the United States for growing wine, do you have any favorite kinds of wines? And what does wine in itself mean to you? It's it's funny. Um, so uh, drunk way too much wine and, and have way too much wine, uh, and and. Uh, have it's it's an evolving process and in some ways for me it's similar than golf you know i i have love hate relationship with it like i i i i love wine but i i i dislike some of the pomp and circumstance around it i'm not sure how to say it that said i'm you you could probably call me a snob on wine but but just because i like what i like but at the same time i don't like all the the scoreboarding around it. I feel like there's so much about the wine culture that gets into like, you know, what is it? Where is it? Who is it? You know, what's the score, all that kind of stuff. So it uh-huh. drives me nuts. That said, I mean, uh, I've evolved, you know, I, I probably, you know, started buying, collecting, trying, you know, relatively early in my career. Maybe it was because of my business. Maybe it was because mm-hmm. I, I was in California. I don't know. Um, and you kind of go through this evolution and I've seen lots of people go through this evolution. I mean, my wife and I was, it was, you know, starting with, you know, the, the big Zinfandels in California, you know, not the white Zinfandel, but like kind of the good ones. And then, and then we, then we moved more into kind of the big California Cabernets. And then we did a little bit of the, the kind of Rhone varietals, California, just because they were accessible and good. And and honestly, they're pretty places, you know, Santa Barbara and Paso Robles, and they were accessible, cheaper than Napa. Mm -hmm. And then we got into pretty heavy Pinot. Then, you know, we had some success in business. So then we started getting into the French wines and the Italian wines and Spanish wines. So it's been a little bit of an evolving process. I lead with food and go with wine. So I tend to trend towards the more acidic, a little bit lower alcohol varieties. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a sucker, even though I'm a corporate guy, I'm a sucker for a small, always, you know, if, if, if it was comparable wine and one was, you know, creating a hundred cases and one was creating a hundred thousand cases, I'm always going for the hundred case one just yeah. because I, I like, I like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. A big part of my life and career. I mean, you know, you know, I, built the business on the back of lunches and dinners. I mean, yeah. that's, that, that, that was wait, 50 pounds ago too. Um, so that was, that was, uh, <laughs> but I, mean, I think it's so, it's a great point is like wine. Yes. It's an alcohol and yes, it helps, mm-hmm. um, ease the tension of a, a nice breaker moment, so mm-hmm. to speak in the conversation, but it's also art and chemistry and it is, a, oh, yeah. it is, a, a condiment to the food that you're, you're having. Yeah. Yeah. And, it always it seems to me like I'd say then it elevates a room every time. Oh yeah, no, and and it it is you know it it is a social lubricant. It, but but beyond that, I think it's it's something to talk about. I, I think a lot of people are into it. I mean, it's kind of a socially acceptable vice. You know, not everyone's bringing out their heroin needles at a party. They're yeah. you know they're getting the wine out, and that's, that's okay. Right. Um, so I think that 
you know, there's a, a lot, a lot to it. Um, you know, obviously in not in excess and not, you know, not too much and all that kind of stuff, sure. but, but, it, but uh, yeah, if you, it it is a fascinating culture, and I think it does bring people together relatively safely. You know, yeah. you don't it, you're not going out too far on a limb to say you want to do some wine tasting or you know order a bottle of wine. That seems pretty pretty vanilla. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's just so true. We talked about how much you love to read. How much you love? What are your top five books? Oof, God, that's a, it's like asking for my top five kids, even though I have one. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, the Fountainhead was probably the most like kind of like life changing book for me. Um, a book called Chanteram. Uh, they actually just made a movie out of it, and I have not seen it or, or a series on Apple. I think uh, Chanteram is fiction, and I am I am uh, one of the f- the few males that reads a lot of fiction, so I love I gravitate towards fiction. Um, I love the Culture Code. I don't know if you read that uh-huh. by Dan Coyle. I yeah, that was a great book. Um, I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna stay with with uh, probably fiction. Um, probably any of the Michael Lewis books. Uh, you know, ranging from Moneyball to The Blind Side. I mean, I loved The Blind Side. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was so smart and so well put together. But even Liar's Poker and the early ones, I thought those were great. I love Michael Lewis. Um, what's gonna be my fifth one? Well. I'll keep it easy. I'm a, I'm a huge a spy novel fan. That's kind of my guilty pleasure. Uh-huh. Uh, I think the new Jack Carr series. We, you know, he's he's been interviewed by Rogan several times too. Uh-huh. But it's kind of Navy SEAL, commando, sniper stuff. Um, he's got five. He's really good writer because uh, a lot of these books are, are not terribly well written, but his is very well written and it's kind of dark. You know, I, yeah. I like the the inner voice. And it's one of the reasons I like fiction so much. I think maybe because I like people, the way I describe fiction is you can, you can actually hear someone thinking who's not you as opposed to even a biography. Wow. You're talking about what you think they're thinking, right? Unless it's a, unless it's an autobiography, but I think that's why I love fiction so much. Cause you're actually getting the inner dialogue and now it's a fake person, yeah. but you're getting the inner dialogue, which I think is so cool. Oh uh, man. I never thought about it in that way. That is so true. Wow. I love that. Final question. Uh, one of my classic enders is based off of Jason Silva, who is one of the, you know, he was involved in the Flow Genome Project, which is understanding high-level human performance, which is really down my wheelhouse of things I love to read about, because obviously I teach a sport mm-hmm. that's all a largely mental to get you over the hump. And I guess most things are, because once talent is given, it's, you know, what can you, com- how, how can you handle it mentally? But he posed a question on social media one day, which is the, uh, everybody experiences three deaths. The first death is the day you find out you're going to die. The second day is the day that you die. And your final death is the last time anybody ever mentions your name. Hmm. And then he turns the screen onto himself and says, what are you doing to extend your third life? And that, that, that I read that, or I saw that right before the first podcast that I did. Wow. And I was like, man, did that make me think, what are you doing? to extend the last life that you have. And so it's that legacy piece, you know, and I have two boys and you have, you have one child and it's, it's, that's the beginning. Of course. Right. That's the easy one. That's the easy one. But what is it that you feel is your purpose and what is driving you to be able to extend life number three? Wow. That's a tough one. And and as I digest it, you know, (laughs) I think ultimately, and, and 
I think ultimately I'm a creative. Uh, it, it is goofy as that sounds because I'm not an artist. I'm not anything like that. But I like creating, and I think if I'm if I'm doing things right, I'm creating things and businesses of substance that will last beyond me. Uh-huh. And it's not just my company, but maybe it's saving something or maybe it's helping someone. And I think it's what I'm trying to do is impact as many people as possible in whatever way I can. Cause I think ultimately people build foundations and I think that that is what does that. So I think I, I I've been lucky. I was, I was, I, I, I'm gifted. I, I, get, I get some of those things. I, I want to make sure that I can help the people that help that and even even in what we do philanthropically and otherwise it's it's helping the people that are going to have a big impact i think uh-huh. that's that's the stuff that i really want to do kind of more specifically i mean i've got i've got a 90-year plan as far as what we want to do i'm not going to make it 90 more years but i've got a 90-year plan and you know i think the place where i really want to help is is um helping people of talent who maybe maybe not have the opportunity to unleash that talent, not, not because of money, not because of anything else, but maybe have and, and teach them how to get from here to there really from a human side. I think, I think if people have talent, it can get out, but I think people get in their way a lot. Mm. So, I mean, whether it's the book, whether it's basic life skills, being a decent human being, I mean, I think figuring out how to use that to get people out of their shell in their own way would be something I think I could have an impact on. Yeah. Well, I love it. Actually, I'm sneaking in a, a, a one last question. Yeah. You got a chance to play one round of golf. Who are the three people you're taking? What golf course are you going to? <laughs> Gosh. Uh, let me start with where I would go. Because I'm relatively, it's a complicated relationship with golf, but I'm excited about it now. I'm going to go some obscure golf course in like Mongolia because I want to go to Mongolia. Uh-huh. It doesn't really matter where I am. Uh-huh. It'll be something fun, but mm. Mongolia sounds cool and I've never yeah. been there. Um, so it's not the brand name, but it's more the experience around mm-hmm. it. Uh, as far as who I'd want to go with, man, I got to say Richard Branson sounds like a pretty cool dude, and he seems like he'd be fun to go kind of anywhere with. Mm-hmm. Alive or dead or just alive? Alive or dead. Um, there's a there's a grand uh, there's a a, a distant um, rel- I mean, I think a great great grandfather of who I never met. Um, and he just sounds like a cool cat, and and we're related. So mm-hmm. um, his name was Frank Labrash. He was a chef for the movie studios back 120 years ago. Huh. Like that sounds cool. Like I I want to I would I would take him and go. Um, and well, as far as inspiration goes, I probably ought to get a a, a woman in here just because it feels pretty chauvinistic saying it the way I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think Anne Rand would be very fun to play golf with, so I'm not going to ask her. But um, man, this is this is tricky. Pete Rose. Pete Rose. He, he was my guy growing up. No kidding. And you know, that was a funny one, right? Because he was he was Charlie Hustle. He was everything emblematic until he wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> and that was that was right when I was like 13, 14 years old is when he got busted, and I was like, yeah, this is the guy who's under under everything, but overachieving. You're like, oh, but he cheated. Mash it. <laughs> and that, that, that ties that ties everything to the beginning of the podcast. This is you get yourself in trouble. Lie, cheat, well, steal. <laughs> Kirby Puckett and Pete Rose were my guys. Like, oh man, what happened? <laughs> oh, God, no kidding. Well, Larry, how can if if I got people out there that are interested in your services, what's the easiest way for them to to reach out to you? Yeah, well. Uh, 
you know, on the website, uh, if, if it's out there, it's sierraconstellation.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not terribly big on socials, uh-huh. but uh, Lawrence Perkins is on LinkedIn. But uh, more than anything else, try and track us down through probably the website. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show and share your story, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Are you looking for a smarter real estate experience? Compass pairs the industry's top real estate agents with innovative technology to deliver a seamless experience for every client, from first-time buyers to seasoned sellers. Lisa Gaston has been a Nashville resident for many years. With her deep local knowledge and her commitment to exceptional client services, she's helping clients all across Nashville find their place. To learn more about Lisa, follow her on Instagram at Lisa Gaston Homes. The Gaston Collective is a team of real estate licensees affiliated with Compass RE, a licensed real estate broker, and abides by the equal housing opportunity laws. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.